the evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. Good afternoon. We are officially in the second half of 2019. It is the 1st of July, and welcome to the show. Today in the hot seat is Yakudiaga. He is the CEO of the ACFE South Africa, which you're going to be learning a lot about um, a little bit later in the show. But first, let's talk about the week that was. I mentioned that it's the second half of the year. Let's just hope that our um, economic figures tend will, will stabilize or perhaps improve. If one looks at uh, the growth figures of the first quarter of, of this year, we were actually in the negative figures. This is something that we haven't seen in a very long time and something needs to be turned around. It's going to be two months next week since we had our national election, our 25th year anniversary of independence and democracy. And it's about time that our government showed us that they were serious about their commitment to investment, both local as well as foreign. The um, Zonda Commission of Inquiry into State Capture have announced that President Zuma will be attending and testifying on the 15th of July at the Zonda Commission of Inquiry in Parktown. Already we're hearing of money being raised in KZN to bus supporters up for President Zuma's testimony, etc. It's vitally important that this testimony be heard, and it's vitally important to be heard in a manner that is not threatening or intimidating. So let's hope we don't see demonstrations and perhaps rioting outside the offices of the Commission of Inquiry. Staying with the Commission of Inquiry, um, we heard the testimony of Angelo Agrizi. We had him on the show for an exclusive interview. And we now have found out that uh, the public protector is involved in the Busasa investigation and has called upon the President of the Republic, Sura Maposa, to submit a to her questions in respect of monies that were allegedly given to his election campaign, which took place in December 2017 at uh, Nazrek. You'll remember that was a very politicized environment that we went into with a very factionalized leading party. It will be very interesting to find out what happens with this and whether or not the the um, current public protector is taking sides or being picky in respect of the investigations that she's choosing. I'd like to remind you that the views expressed on the show are not necessarily those of Chai FM, myself, or any of its guests. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on Chai FM. I'm chatting today to Yaku de Yaga. He's from the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, an internationally known organization specifically um, involved in the training and accreditation of fraud examiners. What does that mean, Yaku? Firstly, welcome to the show. What does it mean to be a fraud examiner? Hi, Chad. Uh, thanks for the opportunity of being here. Well, let's quickly talk about the ACFE and then we'll get to your question. The ACFE, like you indicated, um, is an uh, international organization, uh, more than 85,000 members um, in uh, 189 countries. Um, and what we do is we we set the benchmark for fraud examiners. Um, we also um, are here locally registered uh, as a professional body accredited by SACWA, uh, according to the NQF Act, National Qualifications Framework Act. And we need to uh, adhere also to standards and are audited by SACWA and, and uh, there are certain functions that we need to, to fulfill as a professional body. Fraud examiner is, is clearly defined um, also locally. What we've done is um, uh, 
we registered the, prof- the, the term as a profession, formal profession. Now, I don't know of any other country that's done this uh, in the world. Um, we're the first to do it formally, getting uh, our government to recognize it. And fraud examiner is a, is a person that's, that's actively involved in the fight of uh, white collar crime, your fraud, um, um, which deals with your corruption um, and, and all the other scams and schemes that, that's involved with it. Um, so anything to do with fraud prevention, detection, investigation, uh, that's what the fraud examiner is involved in. And, and he's the, the person uh, that's supposed to be proactive in, in, uh, in dealing and, and fighting fraud. 85,000 members in 189 countries. It sounds like a formidable force of individuals to reckon with, and it also sounds like an incredible resource to have. You've just returned from the um, conference in America. Tell us a bit about that conference. What was it about, and what was the purpose of it? So the conference pulled together all all fraud examiners from all these countries. Uh, We had 3,500 fraud examiners getting together. Majority coming from the U.S., uh, but there was uh, all Africa countries was well represented there. Um, we had uh, people there from Australia, New Zealand, um, the whole of Europe also attending. And the the idea behind this conference is not only to to share skills um, by going to lectures and listening what's what's relevant and what's uh, what's coming in uh, our way. Um, and what others have seen internationally happening, but also to create a network. Um, we believe that uh, an examiner is as good as his network is. Uh, you need to be able to, to pick up a phone and say, listen, chat, I'm struggling with the following. Um, can you assist me? Can you guide me? Um, and, and that's where the strength is with, within the organization. Um, other than that, we also get um, – to, to share information on the exam that you need to write to become a fraud examiner. So there was a full day session only on that, um, what people struggle with, what not. Um, and then lastly, we also get to look at the way forward. What do we expect um, coming up uh, in the next two, three years? What do we need to, to deal with? Um, what, what steps do we need to take to secure our companies, our organizations, our countries? Um, to make sure that um, we can fight uh, the fraudsters that that will hit us. Now, in terms of training and and specifically the South African context, um, the ACFE South African chapter has set itself aside from the rest of the ACFE in terms of growth. What do you attribute this this growth and this 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 phenomenal? Um, change in attitude towards training too. Is it because of the amount of fraud we're experiencing or is it a, an, an industry that people want to get involved with from a passionate perspective in South Africa and neighboring states? You're right in, in saying that the ACP South Africa stands head and shoulders above the rest. Um, we've, we've been first to do a number of things. Um, we're the first to have full-time employees um, that that run the office of the ACFE South Africa, which have also led us to to deal with and and to administer other countries, uh, to assist other countries in their growth. Currently, we look after nine other countries. Um, in in doing so, Namibia, Botswana, Lesotho, Swaziland, um, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and and Malawi, and many more. 
So we assist them with their growth. What we believe in is that we want to ensure that Africa has a standard for fraud examiners. That if you stand up in a court of law that, and you say that I'm a fraud examiner, that the courts recognize us as, as experts and, and skilled people to, to talk and to investigate fraud related crimes. So that, that is such. We the first to have created a learnership program for, uh, fraud examiners internationally. So nowhere else would you find something like that. We are actually assisting now France to also create something similar to help people that, that leave school and, and that leave universities to get involved in our, our industry and to really drive the fight of fraud. We're the first to have created a formal qualification. Um, our members are different, I believe, from the rest of the world. We want more. The whole time. And, and that's what, what our chapter needs to, to look uh, at creating more and additional benefits to our members. Our members don't want just a designation. They don't want just, if they've got a designation, to have one designation. So the, you need to constantly create more for our members. So we created a, a qualification, a formal qualification on the NQF7 level, which is equal to a B degree. And we linked the international CFE exam to that. We also had to create an NQF8 master's qualification, uh, honors master's qualification for our members, um, uh, which we just released now in the beginning of the year, um, with SOCWAS and the QCTO's um, blessings and registration process. Um, and that's also now uh, being up and running, uh, and hopefully we'll have the first course now by the end of September, October. It's for our members to do. The, the fact that um, we have... All this is not because of the scourge we've seen in Africa and in South Africa. It's just our members are greedy, almost, if I can, can say that, to learn more. So there's, there's this driving passion to be the best of the best. Um, Africa has been used um, all over um, by other countries as a, as a scapegoat to commit fraud. So you'll see um, a lot of times people ask me, yeah, but the mere fact that we see so much fraud being being highlighted in Africa and South Africa especially because we're very vocal about fraud being perpetrated here, is it that we have more fraud than any other country? Now, if you go and have a look at our report to the nations, which deals with international frauds and fraud trends, you will see that we – and some some instances below average on on what the tendency is with fraud being perpetrated in countries. Um, there's a willingness to learn. There's a willingness to fight fraud, um, and there's a willingness now actually uh, that we've seen in a recent survey to come forward and 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 talking about fraud in in our organisation, highlighting those that's involved in fraud, and that makes it um, to be more prominent. Um, and if you look at Internationally, we're the number one country that's actually reporting fraud cases internationally to our police services. Um, so, which is an indicator of how active we drive this whole thing. That was going to take me to my next point. Um, in the mid-1990s, the police secretariat were wanting to convert the South African police from a force to a service, and they brought out advisors from New Scotland Yard, from the FBI, amongst others. 
And one had to smile and chuckle because Africa is a different kettle of fish and you can't apply those kind of policing standards here. So it must be very interesting for you going overseas to a conference with your, with your peers and actually seeing that we as South Africans in some ways are ahead of them or have a better knowledge perhaps of how a fraudster works or what frauds are the most topical at the time. You're quite right. So when we look at the different types of fraud, um, I always laugh when people say, yeah, we're living in a third world country. But I say that if we look at fighting fraud, we're far ahead of the rest. We're in a first world country. And some of those first world countries will not even have the basics in place to fight fraud, such as the chip and pin card. So, for instance, I went now with my chip and pin card to, uh, to America. And in a number of shops, they didn't accept the, the chip pin. So I never had to actually put in my pin to do a transaction, which is scary. Because that's the main reason why chip and pin cards been created to, to deal with um, your bank fraud schemes. Um, and having looked at what the recent release of, of, of stats is of how much money we lose in the banking sector, 800 million we lost just on credit card fraud schemes. Um, I don't even want to know what they what they've caught fraud schemes look like in America. It really is frightening. And when one looks at what's happened overseas, especially with banking systems, etc., a country like America was one of the last to accept certain standards that were set at the Basel conferences in Switzerland as to the protection of data, etc. We're chatting to Yakudu Yaga from the ACFE. When we come back, we're going to talk about the trading that somebody receives to be able to get the designation CFE. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. We're talking about the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, um, South African chapter today. And if you want to be a part of the conversation, you can send us a, a WhatsApp on 061-895-1019. I'll say the number again, 061-895-1019. You can SMS us at 34519 or you can tweet us at Chai FM. Before we went to break, I was chatting to Yaku about the designation CFE. What is CFE? I see it behind a lot of fraud examiners' names. How does somebody get that designation? Well, in order to write your, uh, to become a CFE, which is a certified fraud examiner, um, you need to write an international exam consisting out of four papers. Um, CFEs are recognized uh, internationally as, as, the, uh, as a professional in, in fraud fighting. Um, and we've got plus minus 1,500 in South Africa out of our 12,500 membership, which actually shows you also the critical skill that's involved with it. To write your exam, you need to pass four modules like I indicated. The one is finance, uh, which talks to you all your different financial transactions and schemes, scams. It talks to your investigation techniques, such as how to do a online investigation, how to uh, pull information from a cell phone, a laptop. Um, am I allowed to, for instance, take um, something from your dustbin that, that's lying in your dustbin? What's ethical and what's not ethical. Then we talk about your international law, um, dealing with all the uh, different types of um, systems that's in place. 
Um, we also looked there at your cyber laws and, and your protection to information. You spoke about that earlier. And then lastly, we talk about uh, the, the manual deals with fraud uh, prevention, uh, looking at why do person commit fraud, so your criminology point of view. Um, we deal with ethics. Um, everything that we do relates to ethics and professional standards. And then lastly, also risk management. What do I put in place to make sure that my company is protected? So those four modules you need to pass, and each module you need to pass with a 75% uh, pass rate and above. Um, below that, you will not pass our exam. Now, obviously, the, the million-dollar question for me as a South African is when does the South African context come into play? Because we're talking about 85,000 people in 189 countries, so you can't have all 189 countries covered in your international law. Do you have a separate um, examination or a, a different grading for South Africans that want to specialize specifically in the South African legal framework? So once you've done your CFE exam and you, uh, you get a couple of things, you get your CFE designation, which is internationally recognized. You get a local qualification through SOCWA, which is the NQF7, which I spoke of. You also get the ex officio commission of oath status, which says that you can operate as a commission of oath right through South Africa. Um, that's according to legislation. Over and above that, if you want to specialize further in South Africa, you can write your uh, South African law module, um, which specifically deals only with South African law. And uh, once you've passed that, that's when you get your NKF8 qualification on that. You can do the, 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 the module on its own, but you will not get the NKF8 qualifications. Actually, it will just count towards um, your, your formal qualification once you've written your CFE exam. Which actually gives you then what we say we RPL, recognized prior learning, you into that qualification then. Let's talk a bit about the South African legal framework when it comes to the investigation of crime. I always say we have incredible legislation that just isn't enforced. And an example came to me over the weekend. Um, the normal scam we've all read about where somebody advertises one of their products, uh, maybe they're selling their big screen TV. And they'll advertise on one of these websites that allows you as an individual to advertise your product. Somebody sends you a proof of payment and you release those goods to that person only to find out that that proof of payment was actually fraudulent or fabricated. They've now taken that scam to a whole new level. What they're now doing is they're sending you the proof of payment. You're releasing the goods to a third party who is a Uber driver, supposedly, who has come to collect it on behalf of the person who you bought, who's bought it from you. Once you realize that this was a scam, lo and behold, that Uber driver contacts you to say, listen, he hasn't been paid to deliver that item um, that you sold. But if you pay him what it cost him to, to fetch it, he will bring it back to you. And that becomes the second part of the scam. So now you've paid the scammer into their bank account or into their cell phone, rather, and you've paid now this so-called Uber driver who turns out not to be. So you've been doubly scammed by two phone numbers that are not reeked to individuals. And you've paid money via our banking system to their cell phones that aren't reeked. Where's the fault in this? Where's the flaw? Why is this happening in your considered opinion? Yeah, well... It happened to me as well. <laughs> Sorry to say, uh, being involved in this the whole time, I'll, I'll talk about the scheme that uh, occurred to me. Going back to the definition, we need to look at what is fraud and when is it fraud. A lot of people think that once 
um, in your scenario, if, if, if they phoned me and I haven't made the payment, it's not fraud because there was no actual loss. It's not true. The, the definition of fraud is quite clear and it says that if there's a misrepresentation by one person to another where you acted upon that misrepresentation to your, to your detriment, where there's actual potential, you've got a case, uh, that you can open, um, and uh, to the police services. So the mere fact that uh, you didn't pay, for instance, the Uber driver the second time doesn't mean it's not fraud. Rika is a massive problem for me as well. Uh, there's a lot of phones that you can, that you, that's still in circulation that's not Rika. Um, where people are operating, um, accounts, um, without the necessary authority to do so. So, uh, you will remember a couple of years ago, all the cell phone companies had a cleanup uh, drive a project cleanup where they went and all phones that wasn't recut they actually went to and they they just discontinued it. But with all these hijackings of 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 cell phone trucks of of SIM card trucks, um, there's still some of those cards that slips through that's not recut and being used by all these operators on the outside, and and they are using it for fraud related purposes. Actually, not only fraud related purposes, for crime related purposes. Um, and 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 the cell phone companies are aware of this, and they they actively trying to to source and and to to cancel all those contracts. But it's not taking or not happening. So what we're supposed to do is once you do an investigation from our side now, once you do an investigation, you see a phone is involved that's not recut. You're supposed to highlight that to the cell phone companies, the cell phone company involved. Now, again, not with, with the change of numbers, it's not as easy as just say, let's register it somewhere. Because where do I go? Do I go to an MTN that's got a 060 number or whatever? Do I go to Newtel, uh, Vodacom, Celsi? Um, with numbers being ported from one organization to another, it's not as easy um, to, to just say this guy's 082 number is Vodacom. Um, so that's one of the things that we've been talking to the cell phone companies also to have a generic hotline or, or a report line service where you can actually report all these type of, of phones that's used for, for um, fraudulent purposes or for criminal purposes, which also relate to uh, cases where I will, for instance, blackmail you or I will harass you via phones. We see so many of those being reported to the ACFE and then we need to, to send it on to the cell phone companies to say, listen, uh, this has been brought to our attention. Um, so it remains a massive problem. But the mere fact that you don't know who the nom number belongs to, the mere fact that you've lost money, if you know your definition of what is fraud, you it's your responsibility to go to the police and open cases uh, against those involved. It's incredible what you're saying. We know of a syndicate operating out of Guyani. It's a, we call it a dating scam syndicate. They send friend requests primarily via Facebook. Um, if you're a man, you'll get this pretty girl suddenly appear on your screen. If you're a woman, you'll get this muscular dude appear on your screen. And um, they start engaging you in Messenger, and then it moves to WhatsApp, and they'll send you supposedly or purportedly a nude picture of themselves and ask you to do likewise. The minute you've sent that nude picture... Boom, the scam starts, and they start blackmailing you that they're going to use this picture, send it to your family. If, you, if you're married and you shouldn't have been engaging with these people in the first place, they're going to send it to your wife. And what we found is that 
once the first guy was finished with that particular victim, somebody else would come along with another number. And eventually, these guys would be dealing with multiple numbers. And we would be able to track these numbers to an area in Guyani. But when we tried to, to find the Rika details, they were pre rika There was no information. So what you've said about your organization pushing to have a dedicated hotline set up is vitally important in the fight against that kind of crime. The ICV's got... Um a number of, of forums that we that we initiated under the under the ICV, getting industry leaders together. Uh, for instance, we've got a forum that's dedicated only to look at cybercrime. We've got a forum that's dedicated to only look at micro and macro lending. Uh, we've got a forum that's only dedicated in looking at your healthcare sector. And the cell phone companies also started now a forum under the ACFE, which actually give them a neutrality, a, a, a neutral platform um, where they can talk about things like this, where they can share fraud-related information, which is not competitive, and that actually fight uh, the, the, the fraud that is occurring out there. We're going to take a break. We're halfway through the show. When we come back, I want to talk about all the memorandums of understanding that the ACFE South Africa chapter has been signing, what those mean to the industry and what they mean with the organizations with whom they signed. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. We're talking about the Association of Certified Forensic Examiners, South African chapter. Let's talk about the memorandums of understanding. I follow your social media, I follow your website, and I often see you, Yaku, in the pictures, signing memorandum of understandings with um, public, public and private sector organizations that play a large role in perhaps identifying or preventing crime from taking place. What is the purpose of these MOUs, and where do you see them going? Well, we, we signed thus far a number of MOUs with those that we believe that uh, can add benefit to our members, um, that, but also uh, in, in order to protect the general public out there. Earlier I spoke about the SOCWA and being registered as a professional body. So we've got a, a couple of things that we need to do. We need to provide our members with CPE, continuous professional education. They need to, uh, to meet 20 hours minimum uh, per year, which they, of which two is ethical related. Thereafter, we need to regulate them, our own members. So they need to adhere to a, a strict code of ethics and professional standards. Um, and, and that's non-negotiable. Uh, the main reason, again, is not to protect our members. And a lot of the, the, the public and the members misunderstand what professionalization is all about. We need to make sure that when a, a person from the street wants to appoint someone else, that they, they get the necessary protection in, in doing so. That the person that they appointed needs to adhere to certain skills. So, in doing so, we've also signed MOUs uh, with with other professional bodies that meet the same criteria. You would uh, know that um, previously there was uh, issues relating to um, the SARS scandal, KPMG, and and and, um, and and that brought us closer together as professional bodies because. Although it's it's company related, one needs to understand it's not a company that was at fault. It's not SARS that's at fault. It's people within the organization um, that didn't do what they're supposed to do, and it's got a reputational risk to your entity. So the question was asked, if a person is fulfilling a specific um, uh, function within an organization, they need to adhere to specific rules, 
um, what rules do they need to adhere to? So if you've got a, for instance, head of internal audit, that's, that's, uh, that's not an internal auditor. He's, he's a risk manager or chartered accountant or normal, whatever you want to call it, plumber. Then they are held accountable according to what standards? Plumbing standards? No. They need to be held accountable according to your internal audit standards. So we've signed um, MOUs with other professional bodies like your IA, your IOD, um, Institute of Directors, Institute of Internal Auditors, your uh, Institute of Risk Management, um, your Compliance Institute, etc., etc., in order to help them get the necessary skills to understand what they are supposed to do, be our ears and our eyes so that if they hear something, see something, that they can refer it to fraud examiners to do the necessary investigation, but also know when to stop. A lot of them um, that are a lot of professionals um, that belong to other professional bodies go out there and they, they, they've got this attitude of I can do everything. And unfortunately, although we also sit, for instance, on the King Committee, King 3 report placed a lot of um, responsibility, for instance, in your internal auditor to do certain uh, functions, fraud-related functions. But they're not specialist investigators. They're not specialist fraud auditors. Um, they're not specialist accountants. So this it's a multidisciplinary approach. We work very good and closely with them in, in, in fighting fraud and being proactive. But they need to understand what is fraud, how to fight fraud, when to report fraud. And that's why we signed all these uh, MOUs. When we look at, for instance, your forensic accountant, there's a lot of people that claiming to be forensic accountants out there uh, because they've got a diploma in accountancy and then they go out and they specialize uh, in in brackets um, to say that I am a forensic accountant. According to what standards do you discipline that person? Um, and who's supposed to discipline that person? Is it your CIPAS, your CICAS, your ACFE? So we've now formalized and starting to formalize the profession out there. So if you want to claim to be something, you need to adhere to certain rules. That's that's the main reason for these MOUs. We're now talking about the professionalism of the investigation industry and specifically the term forensic and where people could use the term forensics and perhaps even the term um, fraud investigator or examiner. When we come back, we're going to study that a little bit further and then we're going to find out more about why it may be beneficial for you or somebody you know to perhaps write the board exams for the CFE. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. We're talking about uh, the professionalism of fraud examiners, fraud investigators, and forensic accountants, auditors, etc. in South Africa. It seems to be an industry that's growing exponentially with a lot of terminology being thrown into the mix. What does somebody have to have behind them in order for them to be able to, and don't be one-sided now, in order for them to be able to conduct a thorough investigation in South Africa, in your opinion? Well, if you look at what the standard is for being a professional, you need to be a CFE. Now, the question uh, that that you that you've asked prior to the break was, when can you write the CFE exam? Um, 
and who who can write a CFE exam? We're not um, limiting people to say just a certain category can write a CFE exam. Anyone that's interested and that deals with fraud prevention, detection, investigation can write a CFE exam, can become a member of the ACFE. So number one, there needs to be an interest. Number two, you need to have certain skill sets to write a CFE exam. Our exam is 100% um, practical base. So it's not a thing of sitting at uh, a college or university or school and, and just learning t- terminology. You need to be able to apply um, and, and apply the principles. And we want to get proper cases to be submitted uh, to court and it to be successfully trialed. Um, South Africa has got something like 5% um, success rate in getting all cases through the uh, jury system or judiciary system for that sake. So that's that's our main goal after this. So police officers that's got no qualifications, the question was asked, can they write the CFE exam? Um, investigators, private private investigators who's been in the practice for a number of years dealing with fraud-related claims, can they write the CFE exam? Yes. Um, if you don't have a qualification, you need to have a minimum of eight years' experience, relevant experience to write the CFE exam. If you've got a qualification, it needs to be relevant to our industry. So it will be a B degree in internal audit, risk management, compliance. Um, we've even seen um, IT-related uh, um, uh, courses being set up by the University of Cape Town, for instance, um, that deals with the uh, your fraud um, networks uh, or fraud IT related system development. Um, so those people that that go through those courses can also write the CFE exam. You need to have the qualification with a minimum of two years experience before you can write it. Who can investigate? Anyone that can use common sense. I always say. This is now my personal view. You've got a lot of people that's academics that is, is not able to think on their feet. If you want to do an investigation, you need to be able to adapt, you need to be able to think on your feet, and you need to be able to use common sense. Um, if a thing is too good to be true, it's too good to be true. We always say that to, to the listeners, and, and, and while we're speaking now in general to, to the normal listener out there as well, um, take care of not falling for, for your normal scams like SARS wants to pay out, give us your account details. If SARS don't have your account details now, it's a problem because how do you then uh, fill in your forms? Um, if if there's someone that's died and wants to leave you an inheritance, then it's a scam. They won't contact you via SMS, WhatsApp, or email. They'll contact you, and you'll know about the family member. So investigate it further. And we need investigators that can use common sense to investigate these type of scams. In 1995, the learned judge in the case of State v. Boerter ruled that the investigation of crime was not the sole domain of the South African police. Pursuant to legislation in 2001 that uh, that was initiated after the promulgation of the Private Security Industry Regulatory Act, it actually made provision that people that acted within the private investigation space had to register with CIRA. But the definition wasn't that broad, and we're now seeing a far broader definition, um, and so much has changed in almost 20 years since that act was promulgated with regards to IT-related crime, cyber-related crime, etc. Do you think that that legislation needs to be revised, and what do you think 
perhaps needs to be done to bring the private sector in line with a, a standard across the board so that a partnership can be sought with state law enforcement to help fight this terrible scourge we're facing? Well, it's very interesting. Um, you make mention of CEDA and, and our MOUs. We've got an MOU with, with CEDA. Um, and, and when CEDA, first, when we went to the table, we were called uh, by the minister at that stage, um, I think it was 2007, 2008, uh, saying that they want to regulate the, the investigation industry. And a number of the the big four and the banks and the insurance companies also was at, at that meeting, and it was stated and and we it was agreed that your forensic investigator, as it's defined by the legislation, should sit on the outside, but there should be a body that regulate them. There is a specific skill that they've got, uh, scare skills that they've got, and but they need to be regulated. So at that stage. Um, Donny Duplessis, uh, who's now passed away, Professor Donny Duplessis, and a couple of others got together and they brought the ACF to South Africa. That was 1997, actually, um, in order to, to start regulating the industry. Um, subsequent to that, you're right. Uh, we've had many meetings with CIRA to say that the legislation, although it, it, it says that your fraud examiner, your, uh, or actually not fraud examiner, it's, it stipulates that the people that's not um, uh, included in the legislation is your forensic accountant, investigator, scientist uh, will be excluded and they, they need to be regulated. The definition is too wide. So what is the word forensics? And you spoke about that. Forensics is, is as wide as wide can be. Um, it deals with everything and anything, from splatter analysis to DNA to everything. Um, so we've moved away from that, uh, looking at the international terminology and which is your fraud examiner. That's why we also registered fraud examiner um, with, with SACWA and on the occupational framework as a formal profession. We have had many discussions now with CIRA and we're in the process um, of hopefully within the next couple of weeks um, getting full um, exclusion for all fraud examiners to not fall under the CIRA Act. Should investigators be um, regulated? Yes, they, sh- they should be. Um, is there scare skills? Yes. A fraud examiners got scare skills. You need to be able to understand financial statements. You need to be able to understand fraud. You need to be able to understand all the schemes. Um, and CIRA understands it as well. And that's why uh, CIRA signed a updated MAU now with us to say that fraud examiners will be excluded from the legislation, but if you want to venture into security and security-related investigations, then you need to comply to their bylaws. So all members, that's active members of the ACFE, will be excluded. But again, the but, if you venture into, if USF fraud examiner provides security services also to a mining house or provide um, a a report to say that uh, I want to do the following uh, or you need to put the following in place then you need to abide by their code of ethics and, and, and standards. We're going to take our last ad of the day. When we come back we're going to talk to Jakob about how you can get involved with the ACFE and what the contact particulars of the association are.
You're listening to the Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Well, if you ever wondered what the CFE designation after somebody's name meant, I'm sure you found out today. It means that they are a certified fraud examiner. And it means that they have written board exams much the same as accountants, much the same as other professionals have, including your lawyers, so that they can be recognized as professionals in their industry. Um, Yaku, in closing, tell us why somebody who wants to be in the investigation industry should seriously consider looking at being a CFE, and how would they go about getting in touch with the CFE, and what are the steps for them to write board exams? The ACFE gives you a platform... Um, where you can network with others. So if you've got questions to ask, they will provide it to you. The ACFE also provides you with uh, free tools um, so that you can become more proactive in your approach within your organization. So if there's one email or uh, website address that I, I can give you now to already get these free tools and have a look at what we provide is it's fraudweek.com. There's a couple of uh, downloads that you can download from that. It helps you uh, to to um, to s- with with certain documentation that you can implement within your organisation. So we we provide you with nice tools and and uh, platforms so that you can protect better protect yourself and your organisation. CFEs, like I indicated before, has got certain skill sets. So if you want to stand out above the rest, become a CFE. If you want to uh, to show that as an inter-auditor, external auditor, uh, investigator, that you've got the competency and skills which is recognized internationally and locally, become a CFE. Remember that if you write your CFE exam, not only do you get the qualification and designation, SACWA also uploads your data, your, your details onto a professional uh, database of uh, where all your professionals are listed on. So if you go, for instance, chat, and, and you write a CFE exam, and a person that wants to make use of your services want to confirm that you are a specialist, they can do twi- uh, two things. Either go to the ACFE, say, listen, is Chad a, a member and a CFE, and we'll confirm that. But they can also now go to the SACWAS website to say, yes, Chad's details, is he a professional? And this website will push out a message to you to say, Chad is a professional. So these are the, the, the nice to have in writing your CFE exam. South Africa sits with millions unemployed. We're losing jobs daily, not one to thousands. So the question is, how do you stand out above the rest? If I need to appoint two private investigators or two specialists within my organization, who do I make use of? You're going for the person that's got international accreditation. You know that skills is, is um, up to date and receives uh, continuous skills development. And it's got the ability to do what he's supposed to do. That's the person that you want to keep within your organization. 30 seconds. Tell me about the conference coming up in September. Conference runs uh, 16 to 18 September. There's a 1,000 plus people coming from 25 uh, countries uh, that usually attends. Nice working, networking opportunity. Various topics that we're going to deal with from cyber related, uh, Bitcoin related, um, uh, procurement related um, topics that we're going to deal with. Um, um, that's the place to be www.acfesa.co.za Yaku Diago, thank you so much for joining me in studio today. Thank you very much. I'll be back next week, same time, same place, with more on Confidential Brief.